Have you ever been given a gift and you didn't realize it? I don't mean like a, oh my gosh, where'd that car in my driveway come from? Not that kind of gift, but maybe you had an appointment that canceled and so you ended up hanging out with a friend and talking for an hour instead and you walked away and went, ah, that was really a gift. Something that was kind of surprising that entered into your world when you didn't expect it and it turned out to be a gift. Advent is like that. A couple times a year, we follow the church calendar pretty closely, generally around Christmas and Easter and a couple of other major holidays. But Advent is a preparatory season. If you haven't been around our church, you might not know that. And Advent is a gift because Advent gives us space just to take some time uh, to step back from the craziness of holiday parties and the seasons and, you know, the gift buying and all of that and to take a moment and just pause, remove ourselves, think, roll around in our minds the mystery of the incarnation. I mean, it's the whole thing about Christmas, right? Is that God steps down into our world and Advent gives us a chance to take a moment to think about what the implications of that are. It might be a time to reprioritize your life. It might just be a time to just breathe a little bit. So receive this Advent as a gift. And the Advent space, the gift of that, is actually helping us to prepare for Christmas, where we celebrate the even bigger gift of Jesus. And the theme verse for our Advent series this year comes out of 2 Corinthians 9.15 and says, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift that we get in Jesus. So each week we're going to look at different aspects of the gift that we get in Jesus. And today we're going to look at a really familiar passage out of Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name is Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. So this is a super familiar passage, and we're going to look at it through a different frame of reference today. And the frame of reference will be, what are the things that God is promising to us out of this passage? So the first is that we can have confidence that God is at work. At the time that Luke was written, the people had been waiting, waiting, waiting for hundreds of years. They feel like God has left them. They believe that he's going to come again, but in the meantime, things are kind of a mess. Sort of like now. I mean, good Lord, is there a new form of crazy invented every single day? 
Is there a new disaster that happens every day? It sure seems like that. And where in the world is God in all of this? And it was very much the same for them back there. And all of a sudden, just in the middle of Mary doing her Mary life stuff, the angel Gabriel shows up and he says three things. Hi. Okay, he says four things. We won't count that. He says, the Lord is with you. Don't be afraid. And God is at work. Now, are these something special and unique just for Mary? On the one hand, yes. On the other hand, no. Because Mary is a great example of how God thinks and acts towards us. So I think the virgin birth is a one and done thing. But how God, man, how God approaches Mary is how he approaches us. So I think that there's some things in Gabriel's greeting to Mary that we can apply to our lives too. So the first thing he gets to talking about is that the Lord is with you. What does that mean? It means God notices you. God isn't distant. He's with you. And I think that that is incredibly important for us. I'm currently watching this series called Special Forces. Um, my daughter told me about it because she's dating a guy who's in the Navy Special Forces. and They watch this together, which I find very amusing. Um, but so I've been watching this series and they take a bunch of athletes and TV people and politicians and they put them out with special forces to train them to do special forces stuff. And so there's all these famous people. And as you watch them do the special forces thing, they start to break, some of them pretty, pretty early on. And you realize that some of these people who are rich and famous and powerful lack self-confidence. A lot of them have been told that they're worthless or they feel worthless or they feel not as good as somebody else. A surprising number of them have been in abusive relationships. And I keep thinking, wow, with all of your success and all of your wealth, you're still pretty broken. You feel pretty alone. And what a gift it is to know that God knows you and that God sees you and that God is with you and that God's posture towards you is one of love and care. The Lord is with you. Number two, don't be afraid. I love biblical understatement. After the angel shows up and tells her the stuff, says Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting was this? You think? Don't be afraid. Always, always, always in the Bible, whenever God shows up, whether it's God himself or an angel shows up, the first message is don't be afraid. And it's a fixture in the Christmas story. Over and over we hear don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Why? Well, I think, first of all, the angels are scary. Number two, God's plan can be scary. Number three, the world is scary. And Mary's situation is scary. And your situation might be scary. But the thing that God always wants to communicate is, don't be afraid. And that's because of the next thing that Gabriel says. God is at work. And that's another gift of hope. We look at the chaos around us and we ask, where is God? And the answer is, God's in the middle of the chaos working to bring order and to bring justice and to bring peace and to bring the kingdom of God everywhere. So no matter what it looks like, 
God has a plan and a purpose in the world, in Mary's life, and in your life too. Next, Jesus is the Son of God. In verses 32 and 35, he's called the Son of the Most High and the Son of God. They're basically the same things. And it's important on so many levels that Jesus is the Son of God. But it means something fairly specific here. And we've talked about it a lot in the Gospel of Matthew. Because the current person who claimed to be God was Caesar. At the time of Jesus' birth, Augustus was still the Roman emperor. And Augustus had himself deified, the divine Augustus. And then by the time Luke gets around to writing these things, there's a new emperor who claims to be the son of Augustus, which makes him the son of God. And we saw this in the gold coin that I showed you a couple of weeks ago with Tiberius' inscription. So basically, in the Roman world, the emperor is God. And so Luke is using language that's a direct challenge to Caesar's claim to power. And that's a radical realignment of what the world was expected to believe. Caesar's not God. Jesus is God. And I think it was a liberating claim for the Jews, and I think it's liberating for us. Because think of all the people that you know. Think of all the people on the world stage that could be God, but aren't. I'm not God. I'm not ultimately in control of anything or anyone. And that has been dramatically demonstrated to me over the past couple of months. You're not God. The economy isn't God. A couple of entitled billionaires jetting around the world are not God. Sex, youth, power, money, none of these things are God. And thank God they aren't. Because what do those things drive you toward? They drive you toward wanting more of those things. And those gods will never fulfill you. Scripture tells us that Jesus is God. And he shows us what God looks like. And what God looks like is grace and love and mercy and justice. God's posture towards us is not one of anger or um, being upset with us. It's a posture of wanting us to come home so he can give us everything that will satisfy our souls. Everything else just creates more of a need in us. God wants to fill us with what will satisfy our soul, even if the economy tanks even if the election goes to the wrong party, even if your relationship ends poorly, even if the diagnosis you get is bad, Jesus is God. None of those things. And Jesus is good. Next, God is establishing his kingdom and Jesus is king. Verse 32 says, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. So, as I've mentioned a couple of times over the last couple of months, there's this deep longing in the people that God would come again and that God would reestablish the kingdom, the halcyon days of Israel. And in some ways, the people settled for less than what God had because the plan wasn't just to establish the kingdom of Israel. The plan was to establish the universal kingdom of God. And so the announcement that the kingdom of God is coming and that it's bigger than anybody thought is huge because that means that God's rule has begun. And we've talked about this in the sense of already, but not yet. The kingdom of God is present, but it's not completely fulfilled, but it's started and it's moving towards an end. And that's the part that is most important. God is establishing his kingdom and Jesus is king. 
regardless of what the people at that time saw around them, regardless of what we see around us, regardless of what the expectations we have for life, the kingdom of God is at work advancing. And that's such good news. Because just like with emperors, think about the type of kings that we are offered. None of them ultimately will be able to provide what we need. Lord Acton, a 19th century British historian, said um, a, very, a very famous quote, which I'm going to give you, and then I'm going to go further than the quote normally goes. Lord Acton said, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. You probably have heard that, and it probably rings true. But Lord Acton goes on, great men are almost always bad men even when they exercise influence and not authority. Still more when you super add the tendency or the certainty of corruption by authority. There is no worse heresy than, than that the office sanctifies the holder of it. So power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. That rings true to us. The stories that I read that come out of Washington every day are mind-boggling. It just seems like the intoxication of power seems to cause good people, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt, to sell their souls to something else and become bad people. But then he goes on to say, great men are almost always bad men. And I had to think about that a little bit. And of course, there's you know, shades of meaning and that kind of stuff. But I thought about Henry Kissinger, who died this week at 100 years old. And every article that I read about Kissinger talks talk about what a mixed bag his legacy was. There were some things that were probably very, very good, and there were some things that were pretty horrific. Great men are almost always bad men, or at least have a shadow side. And then he goes on to say, there's no worse heresy than that the office sanctifies the holder of it. What Acton is getting at here is that we shouldn't hold leaders to a lesser standard because they hold a higher office. Like they can get away with stuff that the rest of us can't. He's actually arguing that leaders, he was talking about the Pope and the King in this, this, particular, case, this particular case, shouldn't be you know, given a get out of jail free card just because he was the leader. Lord Acton is holding leaders to a high standard. But I think what his whole quote points out is what we know about people. You just can't trust a political party or a particular person to solve the problems. It doesn't mean give up. It just means that your faith needs to be in the right place. We're about living into the kingdom of God, following the king, Jesus, regardless of who holds power. And sometimes I think it's tempting to go, well, if we can only just fix this one thing, if we can get this, this one problem right, we can take care of this thing, then everything else will fall into place and it'll all work itself out. It won't. Because only changed hearts will end up with changed lives. And the kingdom of God is all about changed hearts. Next, we're living in the kingdom of God here and now. Verse 33 says, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. We're his people. We're living in his kingdom. It's kind of like having the world's most powerful passport. Kind of like you can get out of everything because you've got the right passport. It's like in any situation you're in, you're under the authority of Jesus because you are living in his kingdom. That's where your citizenship is. And his rule and his reign looks like something completely different 
than what is going on in the rest of the world. There's this song that I really don't want to like, and I don't think that I like it, but it has one verse that sticks with me every time I happen to hear it, and it's this verse. The enemy can't take my family because this home belongs to the Lord, so I'm not afraid to remind him that he has no claim in this war. The thing that strikes me about it is that it's exactly right. We live in a different place where our lives are claimed, not by the evil of the world, not by the world system, not by empire, but claimed by Jesus, who is the true king. And then his kingdom will never end. Verse 33, his kingdom will never end. Uh, years ago, my dad thought it would be really fun to take us to go see the movie Camelot. For some reason, it came back on the big screen, and he told us we were all going to go love this story. So we went to see it. I like musicals. I had high, high hopes for this. It was one of the most depressing stories I've ever heard in my life. It was just terrible. Uh, Camelot, um, the Lerner and Lowe musical, came out like the early 60s or something. I don't know when we saw it, much later than that. But it's the story of the legend of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. I mean, there is no bigger medieval legend than the legend of King Arthur. And in the musical, you get to know Arthur, and he has this dream. He has this dream of uh, where people are taken care of, where there is almost a democratic process. He invites the knights to sit at a round table where everyone is equal. And it only rains after sunset and, you know, all this kind of stuff. It's just this perfect place that Arthur has this dream for, Camelot. The problem is it is consistently sabotaged by people who make bad choices. And people's brokenness just messes everything up. And Arthur keeps trying to make it right. My wife is a lit major and she would tell you that Arthur is the Christ figure in this story. And it ends really bad where everything is going to be destroyed. But the moment ends when Arthur finds a young boy who comes to give him some message. And as Arthur shares with him, there's this line, don't let it be forgot that once there was a spot for one brief shining moment that was known as Camelot. It's a sad line, but it's true of our experience. We have these glorious moments, but then they're gone. It might be family relationships and People get old and they get sick and they die. It might be a project. Maybe you were on a sports team or working with a project or a play, whatever. And you have this moment in time that is absolutely glorious and then it's gone. And oftentimes it ends, things end ultimately in loss. I was flying back from California this last week and I sat next to a woman on a plane. She was nice. I'm not a big airplane chatter, so I didn't. We said hello and that was, that was about it. And she had a mask on, so I'm like, okay, I want to respect whatever you know, distance she wants. And we sat down, very dignified older woman, and she pulled out a book on how to deal with grief. I thought, oh, interesting. You know, do I engage or say something about that? And then she put the book away for a second, and we, you know, the plane takes off. And I look down again, and she's on her phone. And, you know, it's an airplane, so she's sitting right there. It's not like I'm some sort of creeper. And she's looking on her phone, and I realize that she's just flipping through pictures of her husband, of her and her husband together, and her family. And this is just so touching, and obviously, she's just lost her husband. And then, again, she's sitting right next to me, and her phone was like in big print, so I couldn't not see it. And I just saw her type, I'm moving to live with my sister, 
and gave the address whoever she was typing to. I'm like, this is a woman who has had this obviously glorious time in her life and now it's over. What we get is temporary. What we long for is permanence. We don't want a truce. We want the end of the war. We want a permanent good thing where you never say goodbye to the people that you love, where there are no more wars or famine or greed or hatefulness, where there's no more cancer and no more tears. And that's the kingdom of God. And the promise is that the kingdom of God isn't temporary. The, king of God, the kingdom of God is permanent. And then Jesus gives us this gift of hope. Mary says in verse 34, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The vernacular English is, that's crazy talk. There's no way that's going to happen. But the angel Gabriel comes back and gives her hope when he says in verse 36, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. In other words, God's already at work. God's plan is already happening. And look at what is going on and how you see God act, how you've seen God act in the past will help you predict how God will work in the future. And the fact that you could trust God for his word in the past means that you can trust him in the future. So you've got Elizabeth. The story before this is all about Elizabeth. And she's been waiting and hoping her, her whole life to be able to have a child. And she becomes pregnant in what they call her old age. I don't think you need, need to picture her being 85. My guess is that she was past normal childbearing age because she had difficulty getting pregnant. So at this time, Elizabeth might have been 25 or something like that. I don't know, maybe 35. I, it doesn't really matter. But she gets pregnant all of a sudden. And this thing alone would have been the type of thing that would have made people say, it's a miracle. And so the first thing when Mary goes, I don't know how this thing can happen. This is way outside the realm of what I think is possible. He points to Elizabeth and goes, but look at this miracle. God says, I'm already doing something. If you can believe that, then you can believe what I am going to do for you. Look at what I've done in the past. It's why the Bible talks so much about remembering. Remember, 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 because that helps us move forward. And then finally... What God says will always come true. God's promise is good, even though it looks challenging, even though it might be hard. This is one more gift. We don't have to wonder if God is faithful to his word. God will do what he said he would do. And then it was left to Mary. There are tremendous obstacles to how God is going to work in Mary's life. Think of everything that must have been running through her mind. Now, maybe you're not in Mary's situation, but God is calling you to trust him. Maybe in a relationship, maybe with a job change, maybe in a big decision. There are all these obstacles, but God is faithful. And then there's this pregnant pause. See what I did there? Because God always waits for our response. God waits for our yes. And this part of the story ends when Mary says in verse 38, okay, let's do this. So now let me ask you three questions. How do you see the kingdom of God at work around you? Number two, how is the coming of the kingdom of God good news for you? And number three, 
What obstacles do you face in trusting God? Hi, thanks for watching. The people of Harbor Covenant Church really want you to know the love that God has for you, want to grow with you in faith, and want to serve alongside you, not only to help others do the same, but also to make our families and our communities better. If that sounds like something that you can get on board with, then like, follow, and drop us a comment in the video. Watch some more videos on our channel or come visit us on Sunday. You can find out more about Harbor Covenant Church at harborcove.church.